My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jana Ray Yerksa and Damien Lee. Thunder Bay is a small city on the north shore of Lake Superior in northwestern Ontario. Like pretty much everywhere in Canada, racism has long been a daily reality for residents of the city who are not white. Like most communities with roots in resource extraction industries, the racism faced by indigenous people in the city has always had a particular character and intensity. In the last six months, though, there's been a significant upsurge in racism in the city. There has been some official and mainstream response to this racism, but activists on the ground point out that this response has been woefully inadequate. Yerksa is from Kuchiching First Nation and lives in Thunder Bay, and Lee is from Fort William First Nation, which is right next to the city. In response to this recent upsurge, they and a number of other Anishinaabe people in the city have formed the Bishkabiyang Collective. They organized a teach-in for indigenous people in the city to discuss racism and settler colonialism in a safe space, and equip themselves to better respond to it in ways grounded in Anishinaabe tradition, political orders, and philosophy. They've been providing some loose input to a group of settlers, that is, non-Indigenous people in the city, who have been organizing separately to respond to the racism, and they've been clearly naming the inadequacy of the official responses, official responses that have amounted to a focus on educating white people about Indigenous people, with little or no attention to racism and white supremacy as structural things, and no mention at all of white supremacy as a tool of settler colonialism. Yerksa and Lee talk with me about the situation in Thunder Bay, about the work of the Bishkabiyang Collective, and about what needs to happen to challenge white supremacy and settler colonialism. I spoke with them by Skype to phone from Thunder Bay. My name is Damian Lee. I'm from Fort William First Nation, which is right next to Thunder Bay, Ontario. I'm a PhD student at the University of Manitoba in Native Studies. And my name is Janaray Yerksa, and I'm Anishinaabeg from Kuchiching First Nation, which is from Treaty 3 territory, and I'm a recent iGov graduate. Just a, a quick interruption to clarify for listeners, iGov is the Indigenous Governance Program at the University of Victoria. Jan and I have been organizing in a loose collective called the Bishkabiyang Collective, and that collective is focused mostly on supporting and fostering Anishinaabeg resurgence here in the Thunder Bay area, I guess more broadly too. A lot of that work is bound up in consciousness raising and discussing settler colonialism, white supremacy, and Anishinaabeg political orders that can respond to that and also be proactive about asserting Anishinaabeg presences in this territory. Damien and I got to know each other, not in person, but because we were involved in the iGov program which is known for being really good at deconstructing settler colonialism and centering Indigenous ways of knowing. And so we got to know each other that way, and it just so happened that when I moved back to Thunder Bay shortly after Damien also moved back, and when we got together here in Thunder Bay, we both talked about how we struggled 
with the way racism gets addressed in the city here because Thunder Bay makes it safe for racism to exist. A lot of times the strategies used to address racism are all about focusing on educating settler Canadians about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal history and an Aboriginal experience and it's decontextualized from the realities of settler colonialism, which is really problematic because then it reproduces racism where you're focusing on the other and you're not called to take responsibility for how you're going to be in those relationships. And so Damien and I met another lady through social media, actually, who had similar type of politics. And we got together with a few others and we decided that we were going to do a teach-in to assert a Anishinaabeg presence and also begin to unpack the realities of settler colonialism. Thunder Bay has a long history of being an unsafe space for Anishinaabeg. It's a heavy resource town. There's a high Indigenous population here and a reserve right next to the city, and it's very isolated too. So that combination, in my books, creates the conditions where white supremacy can really gain strength. If we put it in a larger colonial context, you know, the intention of Canada historically to remove Indigenous peoples from the land to exploit their resources for the benefit of nation building, that carries through into towns where it's heavily based on resource extraction, where an Indigenous presence is seen as suspect or it raises questions like, do we have the right to be exploiting resources from Indigenous peoples' lands that have been stolen from a history of colonialism in Canada? For me, that's the macro context. And that has made Thunder Bay unsafe place for generations for Anishinaabeg. However, since October, there's been a shift in the anti-Indigenous racism here that I've observed. And what happened was at the end of October, there was a bridge that links the city of Thunder Bay to the reserve next to it. So that's Fort William First Nation. And that bridge was set on fire through vandalism. In the hours after it was burning, the political leaders came out to say, you know, we have to get to the bottom of this. We're going to find the culprit, that kind of rhetoric. Very little was said about social media. Twitter that night was very anti-Indigenous. Many people were saying, let the bridge burn and we hope it burns the rest of the res. Let's save Thunder Bay. And those kind of sentiments. Basically, this is for the city because the Indians are going to be totally pushed back or, you know, in the words of some people, burned. Now, economically, what that did is shut down a very important economic link between the reserve and the part of the city close to the reserve. And there was some organizing in the months after that about trying to fix the bridge or address the bridge issue because both communities were losing a lot of money. And that's where Tamara Johnson first appeared. She was, at that time, a provincial conservative candidate. And she basically championed this thing of, like, First Nations get an illegal tax break because they can sell gas and smokes cheaper than people in the city. And that's where it really started in the sense of she championed that issue. And because of that, she actually got dropped from the Conservative Party and was later picked up by the Libertarian Party. And that really set off the spike in racism that continues to grow here. She came out and, in my opinion, became a hero for people who are feeling disenfranchised financially for any number of reasons. She has a lot of followers. And it seems like those people that are following have some sort of beef, whether it's about loss of jobs or like the Ontario and Canadian tax system or whatever. But the way that the rhetoric is structured is that it's Indigenous people's fault. It's basically scapegoating. Basically, it's asserting that settler colonialism has the full right and it's just natural that white people in Canada should have access to all the resources and should be protected financially from any kind of economic issues, especially in the North here. 
start teaching, it was mm-hmm. really loosely advertised, and we had a really great turnout. We were kind of surprised about that because we had about 40 people show up during a blizzard, and from the teaching, you could really tell that people were quite motivated to have a different type of discussion around racism and begin to unpack the realities of settler colonialism. We looked at a lot of check back messages that aim to really shut down conversations around racism and settler colonialism and white supremacy. That teaching, which was held in April, it was very clear to me, like Jana touched on, the people that were in the room who were, I would say, 99% Nishnabeg, they were really eager for a space and a conversation that they didn't feel shut down when they asserted themselves as people concerned about ending racism. And what I mean by that is that the folks that attended, you know, they live in Thunder Bay. And like Jana mentioned, the anti-racism organizing in Thunder Bay, like the actual initiatives that are being rolled out to end racism in, in this town are actually very safe for racism because of the way that they are structured in the discourse of like focusing on individual acts of racism, totally excluding structural aspects of it all. So these people, I think it was very clear to me that when they were in that room and they could say the words white supremacy, they could say the word settler, they could say the word colonialism, they didn't have to prove that those things existed. And that I think was very validating and very relieving for them. Because once they found that they could say those things and, you know, the people organizing the event didn't check them back into place by saying, oh, we can't use that word or, oh, you know, don't point out someone's whiteness. You know, once they had a space that they themselves didn't feel that they were facing this barrage of checkback messages again, it was clear that they dug in. They were fully present and they wanted to talk about it. And I think it was very validating for them to have that space. So much to the point that when the teaching was over, we kind of had to kick people out, mostly because we were losing the space and it was late at night, we had to go home. But there was a real eagerness there. Tell me a little bit more about some of those messages that you talked about at the teach-in and the kinds of tools that you helped people to develop to identify and challenge them. There's a bunch of classic ones, such as like, I'm not a settler, I was born here. (laughs) You know, treaties were signed a long time ago, or get over it. Like, that was a long time ago, that wasn't me, what does this have to do with me? Or... Not all white people are like that. Or one of my favorites is that's reverse racism. <laughs> you know, putting, oh. making, <laughs> you know, bringing whiteness into view and saying that whiteness is part of a problem. Just naming that is received as that is reverse hostile. racism, right? Yeah, hostile. It's almost like you're swearing if you say white, white people. Another one is, this is one of my favorites. This is just the beginning. What happens is when we start to engage in strategies that are presented to address racism and we start off with just let's educate about Aboriginal people or let's talk about residential schools, which is really super important, but it's all decontextualized again from the realities of settler colonialism. There's this pushback to say, well, this is just the beginning. We have to start somewhere. But what's problematic is that beginning and that starting point is reproduced over and over and over again, and it doesn't move beyond that. So then that's when it becomes a checkback message. The fact that history of 200 or 300 years of resistance, the fact that Nishnabeg are still here, still speaking Nishnabeg language, 
all these things that's totally, as Jenna said, decontextualized from an act that is seen as just the beginning, right? And that really sums up all those checkback messages for me is what they do is they decontextualize whatever action is taking place from settler colonialism in a way that settler colonialism gets to continue on. So these checkback messages work to shut down conversations so that the conversation doesn't get close enough to the problem. And those checkback messages, those are the micropolitics of settler colonialism that plays out every single day. And those are acts of violence, and those are aimed to shut down Indigenous voice and erase Indigenous presence. And although they are so normal, they are still very violent. And really, I think what was so powerful about the teaching, and when we talk about how the people that participated, the onus and the burden of proof wasn't put on them to prove that this is in fact racism, or this is in fact settler colonialism, and that they could just talk freely. I think it speaks to how those micro politics that happen every day when it comes to settler colonialism, how it weighs heavy on the Indigenous psyche, and that those everyday acts are not separate and isolated from the larger structural issues that we talk about today, such as residential schools, such as the 60s group, such as the Indian Act. They're all connected, and they help to maintain the order of settler colonialism through white Mm -hmm. supremacy. And I think that when people left the room, they had those 20 or so checkback messages on their email, so that when they were engaging in conversation, again, in their own lives, or observing official responses to racism, or seeing, you know, racism being discussed in the media, they now have some tools that they can draw on to say, like, no, we need to continue this conversation beyond that message you just gave me because that message is actually working to shut me down. So I think that that list was a tool that they could use to strengthen the work that they're doing in their own lives, whatever the case. You know, racism and settler colonialism manifest in a number of different ways that these people were going back into their daily jobs and daily lives. And at least maybe they have these messages now to help diagnose the ways that those messages are working to shut them down. And what came after that initial teaching? How did you build on that interest and enthusiasm in having those conversations? We're planning to do uh, another set of teachings. We haven't done one yet, but that's mostly because of getting busy in the summer. I would say that one of the most profound things that came out of that teaching initially is that the collective itself was able to start addressing issues of racism and settler colonialism in the Thunder Bay community with some validity. We weren't coming out of the woodwork, and I think that people were interested to follow the discourse that we were putting into the community. And that had a lot of traction in the discussion about racism in the last three months. People are looking for answers in terms of how to address the more overt acts of racism happening here right now. And there has been a settlers, in some ways, there's been a settlers in solidarity group forming that I think has really benefited from the work that we're doing in the community, which is focused on, you know, naming settler colonialism and working with Anishinaabeg, this group that is forming, in some ways, is informed by that discussion that I don't think that they would have had if the age-old narratives about ending racism were the only thing they could choose from here. I think that another thing that we did do was the Ontario Libertarian Party candidate who was running in the provincial election published an ad in the Chronicle Journal that was presented as her political platform, but really it was a lot of anti-Indigenous sentiment and was hate speech. And so when the Chronicle Journal published the ad, another thing that the Biscobion Collective did was we responded not to the Chronicle Journal and not to the political candidate, 
But what we did was we looked through the Chronicle Journal to see who advertises with them. And what we did was we wrote a letter to the people that advertise in the Chronicle Journal just explaining what was problematic about the Chronicle Journal publishing the ad. And again, highlighting the structural issues of settler colonialism and how that plays out with racism. And basically gave the people that advertise in the Chronicle Journal a few options in terms of the fact that they are getting money from Indigenous people. And then if they're going to continue to advertise with the Chronicle Journal, how do they justify taking money from Indigenous people and then fund a media outlet that is okay publishing hate speech? We really wanted to make sure that our letter wasn't just about saying, hey, this is wrong, but putting accountability measures in place, which again goes back to our collective about centering Anishinaabeg ways of knowing because accountability is huge when it comes to our political practices and philosophy. And that letter was made public the day before the Ontario election. So there was a lot of traction because the ad that she's talking about in the Chronicle Journal came out, I guess, two days before the election. So the next day, a number of Indigenous organizations responded publicly about it. And we assumed that that would be the case. So we also responded publicly with that letter. And I think the strategy was bang on. People came out denouncing the ad, denouncing the candidate, denouncing the Chronicle Journal. And so one of the gaps that was left open was, you know, what about people funding the Chronicle Journal? So I think that that was well played on our part, but also in terms of the collective of Indigenous organizing here. Altogether, we all came out and addressed various aspects of that whole problem, right, which really underlined for me, or at least exposed the structural elements of it all. Talk about the ways that you see white supremacy and settler colonialism as not the same things, but as linked. And how you talk about that, the language that you've come up with in the work the collective has done, and why you think it matters to have that focus. Settler colonialism, for me, is the context and the historical trajectory that has produced the state of Canada as we know today. And when I think about it like that, white supremacy, racism, homophobia, sexism, these are different tools that are deployed to protect the settler colonial order. And for me, focusing just on ending racism without also including a, a critique of settler colonialism, it leaves settler colonialism uninterrogated and therefore allowed to persist. And so racism is just one tool in a settler colonial context deployed to protect settler colonialism. And so if we organize where we just focus on racism, we're at risk of reproducing a discourse that settler colonialism is reproduced in organizing that we do. Therefore, if we put settler colonialism on the table, if we critique settler colonialism in our work, we include it as the operating system or the construct that is the real root of the problem. And we can therefore, at that point, start developing responses or initiatives that seek to remove or work around the state, the settler colonial state in itself. And for me, that's a form of self-determination where indigenous peoples and settlers, if they're organizing directly with each other as opposed to relying on instruments put forward by the state or in kind of a more local context, instead of relying on initiatives put forward by the city, if we're forming real relationships that way, then we're acting with more self-determination in a way that we don't just automatically or invisibly reproduce the very root of the problem. So for me, they're very different things, white supremacy, racism versus settler colonialism. One's a tool, whereas the other one is really the root cause or the root problem. In the city here, a lot of the strategies put forward, as I mentioned earlier, they don't even talk about the tool of white supremacy or whiteness. 
So it's still about, like, let's talk about racism and let's try to alleviate that by educating about Aboriginal people, which speaks to how powerful the tools are and how elusive settler colonialism is. And I agree with Damien that racism is a tool. It's a manifestation of settler colonialism. And unless we start to have those discussions about settler colonialism, we just always run the risk of reproducing it and not getting into a different type of relationship that I think a lot of us want to engage in. You've mentioned that it's not central to the work that you've been doing, but you have had some connection with the settler group in Thunder Bay that's been doing some organizing in response to the racism and in response to settler colonialism. Tell me a little bit about what you see in that work that is promising and encouraging, and also what you see that is perhaps worth being wary about and being careful about. First thing to say is it's very, very new. That organizing is just in its very nascent stage. I guess that could be a checkback message in some way, which overlooks the kind of resistance that non-Indigenous people have done here in the past decades. But in terms of coming together as a group of people discussing settler colonialism, that is very new and it's happening right now. Uh, that discussion is getting deeper and deeper into addressing what can be done. That's a conversation that's somewhat separate from the work that Jen and I have doing, although that I've been active in trying to inform those settlers in town that are trying to organize. And the reason is, if we're going to work with allies in my books, I think it's really important that those allies don't reproduce any tropes that can actually reassert settler colonialism in the process. My approach to that has really been to draw people together who've been contacting me as somebody who's been vocal and in the media about this stuff. I've been drawing those people together saying, you need to speak to each other about this stuff. They're starting to do that. I think that they're carrying themselves ethically. They're going through an unlearning process in the sense that they know they need to do something about racism and they know that what's been going on in the city the last six months especially is very wrong. But in terms of unlearning, they're having discussions with me about how to carry themselves in their own initiatives. So I've been trying to supply them with readings and information that sums up in some ways the discussion we're having here right now about not making this about learning more about Indians. It's about flipping the lens and making sure that they're carrying themselves in a way that has a critique of settler colonialism so that when they go to do work with people who are either getting caught up in this racist stuff or are kind of oblivious to it all, they don't just reproduce the problems of like, let's learn about Indians or focusing just on racism. So they're engaging in a way that brings the structural elements into play and they're engaging in a way that brings settler colonialism into view. But it's very new. They're just organizing that right now. In the discussion, they demonstrated that before all this stuff happened, before reading information about settler colonialism and linking it to structural issues, they would have gone out and said, let's learn more about Indians, and would have gone out and discussed racism, completely decontextualized from settler colonialism, and might not have placed all this work within a broader context of living in Anishinaabeg territory. That's where it is for me. Like That's what I've observed, and I'm really happy with that in the sense that they are informing themselves and they're coming together in a way that is open to the possibility that they could become part of the problem just by operating with good intentions. I think it's becoming clear to them that good intentions aren't enough in working to address settler colonialism as a settler solidarity group. I think that's really positive, and I think it bodes well for the work that they're just now developing. And where it is right now is they're trying to develop a strategy, basically how to, um, I don't know the best way to say it, you know, 
win souls from the most hardcore racists in town right now. They're trying to figure out how to reach those people who are just looking for answers, but being spoon-fed these really racist answers and buying into that. They're trying to like reach those people who might be able to be swayed back to a more ethical, anti-racist approach. Part of the process of learning or unlearning, however we're going to talk about it, is it's so important to work with the people that want to do the work. Doing this type of work takes a lot of energy, and it's about investing that energy with people that are motivated to do the work, people that really dig in their heels. It's not about placating to them and, you know, reinforcing that white privilege and white supremacy and coddling people. When I look at my own decolonization process, like nobody held my hand. And so I don't think that we should expect to do that with settlers either. Give me a sense of the kinds of things that it would be useful for your collective and the broader communities of which your collective is a part to be doing to challenge settler colonialism and white supremacy. Where we're at with things, I think that there's still a strong need to diagnose racism and how it plays out, to diagnose settler colonialism. One of the barriers is that I think that People believe that talking about settler colonialism is something that should only be happening in an academic realm. People right now, like, sometimes we lack the language to diagnose and to talk about settler colonialism. And I think the fact that we lack the language speaks to how powerful it is. And so right now it's just about putting the language there and diagnosing it. Yeah, and just to build on that, diagnosis is such an important part of all this. However, it's not the only part. The other part that's really important is that, like Jana said, we're centering Anishinaabeg political, legal, cultural orders that come to play a very important role in how we respond to racism and settler colonialism in Thunder Bay. As we center Anishinaabeg political orders, legal orders, and philosophies in our work, we're not only just diagnosing, we're also represencing or strengthening Anishinaabeg presence in Anishinaabeg territory which is a form of resurgence. It's a form of resistance because of the settler colonial context that we're in, which has been predicated on removing Indigenous peoples or silencing Indigenous peoples from this land currently called Canada. So the way I look at our work is it's like a balloon. It's doing two things at once. As you blow up a balloon, you are diagnosing and pushing back on the outside settler colonial context. However, as you're doing that, you're also filling up the balloon with warm air. So that's the filling up or the resurgence or the restrengthening of Anishinaabeg presence, Anishinaabeg philosophies, political orders, all that stuff that is bound up with being Anishinaabeg and being a part of Anishinaabeg nation. A balloon is blowing up and making space, a safe space, where Anishinaabeg can be in their territory and not have to feel threatened or unsafe because of the colonial context. That really metaphorically sums up the work that we're doing. It's not just about diagnosis, which is a really important part of it. It's also about recentering and restrengthening. You have been listening to my interview with Jana Ray Yerksa and Damian Lee of the Bishkabiyang Collective. We have been talking about the struggle against racism and settler colonialism in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To learn more about the collective, you can follow them on Twitter at at symbol B-I-S-K-A-A. B-I-I-Y-A-N-G.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.